Thank you for listening to this Aspen Abstract podcast, sponsored by a grant from Fresenius Cobby. Today, we are discussing utilization of parenteral nutrition in major GI surgery, an opportunity for quality improvement. This research was discussed at Aspen 21, and is being discussed in this podcast as a poster presentation. We are pleased to have this opportunity to discuss the research with the lead authors. My name is David Evans, and I'm a trauma critical care surgeon and nutrition support specialist at Ohio Health Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. When I first took my position uh, several years ago in nutrition support at a prior job, they needed somebody to do the TPN, and they hoped that I would control cost and tell the surgeons not to waste money on peripheral nutrition. But what I found as I educated myself more was that we as surgeons were often underdiagnosing and undertreating malnutrition and that for every inappropriate parenteral nutrition initiation, there were probably several more patients who would benefit from PN, but who weren't getting it. I believe we could improve surgical outcomes with adequate nutrition support. That's why I'm so excited about today's discussion. Today, I welcome Katie Mathias and Taylor Aldridge from Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Ms. Mathias is a clinical dietitian and certified nutrition support clinician and Ms. Aldridge is a board-certified physician assistant in GI surgical oncology. They evaluated the use of parenteral nutrition in their practice and how concordant or disconcordant their practice was with the Aspen guidelines. I'm really excited to hear their perspective today. Thanks for joining me, Katie and Taylor. First, I'd like to see if you could tell us a little bit about your practice and the patients you're treating and what prompted you to do this project. Sure. So uh, I'm Taylor. I'm a physician assistant who practices in uh, GI surgical oncology and HPV surgery. My role includes both inpatient and outpatient coverage, which has put me in a position where I'm able to have a broad view of patients' entire perioperative nutritional journey, but even more broadly, uh, nutrition as it relates to GI cancers. I see patients in the preoperative setting where they're often struggling to meet their caloric needs because of chemotherapy side effects. I see them immediately post-op when sometimes complications warrant parenteral nutrition use. And I see them even on an outpatient basis after surgery uh, where there's a bit of an urgency to get them back to baseline nutritional status so they can resume their chemotherapy. And then even beyond that, I think that I get to see sort of uh, the bigger implications of what some of these uh, GI surgeries or how they impact our patients' nutritional status long-term and their abilities to eat. And I'm Katie. I'm an inpatient registered dietitian. I'm also covering the surgical oncology and HPV patient population. And every day we have multidisciplinary rounds, which includes myself, physical therapy, case management, social work, nursing staff, and a member of the surgical team. And we would frequently have the same discussion. Does this patient really need TPN? And from that, we developed a QI project to try to have a better understanding of the clinical judgment that goes into initiating TPN during the perioperative period. We wanted to gain insight into the variable practices and determine how we can improve on them. And our patient population was mostly HPV and foregut, and we didn't include any colorectal surgery uh, practices. Great. How did you set up your project and your data collection? What kind of standards were you using? And, uh, you know, I know you had some kind of national standards and documents that you were looking at. How did you define whether your practice was concordant with those or, or not concordant with those practices? 
We retrospectively reviewed medical charts of about 80 patients who were initiated on parenteral nutrition over a six-month time period in 2020. The patients included in the study must have had surgery at Stanford University Hospital, and they also must have been initiated on parenteral nutrition at our facility during that perioperative period. We used the 2017 Aspen JPEN expert consensus recommendations to determine concordance. And so as a little bit of background, these consensus recommendations suggest that parenteral nutrition should only be used if the anticipated duration of use is greater than five to seven days. They also recommend starting parenteral nutrition as soon as feasible for patients with severe or moderate protein calorie malnourishment in whom PO or enteral nutrition was insufficient to meet needs or contraindicated. If a patient has mild protein calorie malnourishment, Aspen recommended starting parenteral nutrition within three to five days. And patients who are well-nourished uh, were recommended to start parenteral nutrition after a period of seven days if they were unable to meet their uh, needs orally or enterally. And so we interpreted those guidelines and applied them to our patients. We specifically looked at the time frame to initiate parenteral nutrition uh, based on a patient's malnutrition status and then the length of use. Once a patient was identified as being started on parenteral nutrition outside of those timeframes, we stratified them into two groups. Uh, patients who were started on parenteral nutrition too soon and patients who were started on parenteral nutrition too late or sort of beyond the recommended timeframe that Aspen put forth in those guidelines. That's great. It's really an interesting examination and something that probably a lot of us should do in our practice. Uh, for you, were you also looking at the use of pre-op parenteral nutrition, or was it strictly uh, in the post-operative period in the inpatients? So our QI project strictly reviewed post-operative TPN. And however, there are a few patients who were admitted to the hospital, started on TPN, and then had surgery. So we did include those in our study, but the TPNs had to be started at Stanford, um, not at an outside um, institution. And currently, the preoperative nutrition screening process is being reviewed and a workflow is being established to capture patients who need to be seen pre-op by a dietitian. Great. Uh, well, let's move to the results. You know, you looked at two subgroups of patients, those who had parenteral nutrition started in concordance with the Aspen guidelines and those who didn't. What did you find out about the malnutrition status of those patients and how should we interpret your findings? So our study sort of identified four important points. I think the first thing is that about two-thirds of the patients in this study had moderate or severe protein calorie malnourishment at the time of their initial dietitian assessment. And so this sort of begs the question, how can we better identify these patients before they get to the hospital the day of surgery? And how can we start them on nutritional supplementation when they're still able to tolerate things orally? The second thing that we found was that roughly two thirds of our severely malnourished patients were started on parenteral nutrition beyond or too late the Aspen recommended timeframe. And in talking about this with some of the, the surgeons, this sort of represents a gray zone for them 
where a lot more research can be done. So one of the examples that we talked about is that the routine post-operative care for a patient with an ileus would be for us to wait a handful of days and sort of see how the patient declares themselves and, you know, do they need nutritional supplementation or are they going to open up on their own? And the trouble is, is that with these Aspen guidelines, a severely malnourished patient wouldn't be allowed to have that period. And if you were to start them on parenteral nutrition as early as Aspen has recommended, you may also be putting them at risk for being on parenteral nutrition for sort of a a short duration, less than this five-day period. So it creates a little bit of a conundrum and a little bit of a clinical challenge in trying to follow these guidelines, but also evaluating the patients on an individual basis. And then the final thing that we found was that in our study, there were 20 well-nourished patients. 90% of them were started on parenteral nutrition too soon or before the timeframe that Aspen had recommended. And of those 18 or so patients, a third of them were on TPN for less than five days. Uh, So when I talked with the surgeons about this, we thought perhaps this is sort of the situation where we're starting parenteral nutrition in an anticipatory manner. So, you know, somebody has maybe an incision where we're not sure, is this like pus? Is this succus? We need another day or two to figure it out, but let's start them on parenteral nutrition now so that we're ahead of the game and they haven't fallen behind from a nutritional standpoint. We want to intervene as soon as we can Um, And so in some cases, we sort of miss the mark and we're starting them too soon where perhaps they don't need to be on PN right away. But it's, again, a difficult situation or a challenging situation in making that decision. So I think that those were, were the key things that we found with this study. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, clearly, you know, timing and duration of parenteral nutrition is one of the big focuses of your project. And, um, you know, you had patients who got started both too early and too late and, you know, clearly we all understand why too late's a problem. Kind of, I think you've answered my question, but is too early a problem or is it just that it puts us at risk of having these patients who, you know, are started too early and then didn't really need it, you know, because it's a short duration. Right, exactly. So, you know, ideally we're trying to anticipate the best plan for the patient because PN initiation too soon has historically just not been shown to be beneficial for a patient's nutrition status. Um, And then when PN is used for a short period, but it may not be warranted, it can also contribute to an increase in cost, labor, and then it could be a potential avenue for infection. So I think, you know, we're doing the, hopefully doing the best we can to anticipate the needs of the patient while also looking at those Aspen guidelines as well. Overall, you found that 68% of the time PN use in the population was not concordant with the Aspen guidelines. Uh, Why do you think that was? Surgical oncology is frequently an area where nutrition support clinicians really across the country tend to struggle to achieve consensus with their treating surgeons regarding uh, nutrition management of the patients. There's something globally or nationally as a nutrition community that you think we should be doing differently when we approach the surgical oncology patient population. We, we definitely agree that surgery is a nuance and a complex situation, and it definitely may warrant TPN use outside the Aspen recommendations. Uh, this study has allowed greater discussions within our surgical teams on the importance of nutrition, pre-op and post-op in order to ha- enhance patient recovery. 
we're trying to engage the nutrition team, the dietitians earlier in the perioperative period. So, you know, both preoperative and earlier in the patient's stay to really enhance the patient's recovery. J.D. Williams and Paul Wishmeyer in 2017 published a survey of perioperative nutrition practices of surgical oncology program directors and showed that something like 80% of those academic surgical leaders thought that standardized practices for pre-op nutrition would be helpful, but 72% of them felt that other issues typically took priority, and a large group thought that there was either insufficient evidence for various nutrition strategies or a lack of awareness around those issues. As your practitioners who work in this area every day, what do you think we can do to improve nutrition practices in the surgical oncology patient population? I think that's a great question. And though our study focused on parenteral nutrition use, I think ultimately we ended up with a similar query for our institution. What can we do to sort of globally improve the nutritional status of our patients? So something that was a little bit surprising to me was that roughly two-thirds of our patients presented with moderate or severe protein calorie malnourishment. And this was actually something that was mirrored in the responses of the Williams survey, where the respondents estimated the prevalence of malnourishment of their patients to be much lower than the published objective data. And so to me, that really underscores the importance of expeditious identification and treatment of those patients during the preoperative period when they can tolerate a PO nutritional supplementation. And ultimately, perhaps once they get to the hospital and in that postoperative setting, maybe we don't, won't need to use parenteral nutrition because they would be better nourished. And then the second thing I think that was a lesson for us was that the Williams study said that while we think nutrition is super important, uh, there are a lot of other clinical factors that maybe take precedence. So, and I think this is often reflected during rounds here at the hospital. You know, we will have a patient who is waiting for some sort of, you know, procedure with interventional radiology and their uh, schedule is backlogged and our patient is waiting to go down with them. And all of a sudden, now we have a patient who's been NPO for three days and we have lost some time in getting them on therapy. And I think furthermore, as clinicians, we sometimes will sort of focus on what we think are the more important medical care, you know, DVT prophylaxis, wound infections, antibiotics, and sort of overlook the global importance of nutrition. And especially in patients who have had or who have GI cancers or have undergone some of these big GI surgeries. That's really what should be one of the most important factors in our care for them. And so I think we sort of get lost in the bushes there at times. Yeah, well, I'm definitely very impressed by your analysis. And it sounds like having the conversation is a big first step. Have you made any changes in your practice yet based on your findings? So we are currently in process of reviewing our ERAS protocols. So those include the perioperative period. Um, and we are working on including oral nutrition supplements pre-op so something that our outpatient dietitian team could provide to patients before surgery. And we're also looking at implementing a malnutrition screening tool to capture patients who are nutritionally at risk and need to be seen by an RD prior to surgery. Um, inpatient, we are also reviewing our current oral immunonutrition supplement to find ways to encourage better patient consumption. Great. 
And how did you engage your surgeons in the discussion? What kind of response, you know, did, did they provide when you shared this data with them? Yeah, so, so far the response has been positive. We're still in the early stages of using our data to develop uh, QI projects with the oversight of, of the surgical teams. From this, we, we sort of feel like there's tons of work that can be done, but we'd like to focus our efforts primarily on identifying uh, and improving communication uh, regarding patients' nutritional status in all stages of their care, preoperatively, immediately, post-op, and then even long-term. And then second to that, I think we would like to do a better job at identifying these malnourished patients who are being started on uh, parental nutrition too late or you know beyond those Aspen uh, recommended timeframes because they have really severe clinical ramifications of not being started. There's a, there's also that subset of patients who are started on parental nutrition too soon, but I think of clinical importance, these severely malnourished patients really need to be on parental nutrition or identified and started on parental nutrition as soon as we can. Well, thank you, Katie and Taylor, for joining me today. We also want to thank Fresenius Kabi for providing us the opportunity to discuss your research. As always, thank you to our audience for listening to this Aspen podcast. That's all for this episode. Please return to the Aspen channel of SoundCloud often to listen to our newest podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over on SoundCloud.